Well, please uh, keep your Bibles open if you've got them. I hope you can see uh, this part of God's Word that we're looking at. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible or a device that you can look at it on, a phone or a device, they're actually on the back of the outline, as long as your um, eye vision is very good, uh, there is, is printed the passage we're looking at. It is rather small, uh, but uh, it'd be really helpful to be able to follow along as uh, we look at this part of God's Word. Uh, year 6 to 8, uh, staying in church today, it's a uh, school holiday special. Uh, so uh, you're, you're with the grown-ups today. Let's uh, pray as we come to consider this part of God's Word. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for making yourself known to us through the Bible, which points us to the Lord Jesus. Father, please give us uh, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to respond to you as you would have it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, those who know me uh, know that I have an amazing capacity for not noticing things. Uh, I am quite unobservant. Um, Some people I understand are are quite visual people, and um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, So take, for example, my wife, Jenny. Uh, She is is very visual. If I asked, asked her next Wednesday... Uh, what, um, what Gay was wearing at church on Sunday this morning, sorry to pick on you Gay, she'd be able to tell me exactly what Gay was, was wearing, where she was sitting in church, who she was sitting next to, and I, it's just, it astounds me. I, I regard it as some sort of superpower that she, that she possesses, uh, because I'm hard-pressed to remember even what I'm wearing at the moment. Oh, that's right. Let alone what I was wearing three days ago. Uh, some people are observant, I am not. Uh, but, you know, despite our, our different abilities to observe things, I, I think we all actually tend to not notice things about our own normal surroundings. Uh, we, we, we don't notice things, we, we don't observe them because, well, they're normal. That's just how things are. We, we take them for granted, they just kind of blend in and we think that's just normal. But it's when we actually step outside of our normal situa- situation and surrounds, we, we go somewhere new, often then we, we notice things, we observe, we pick up differences. You know, maybe you go on holidays and you arrive in a place you haven't been before and you, and you walk down the main street and you just notice things about the people, about their behaviour, about their culture, about their values. Or you move to a new city or you move to a new country and things jump out at you that are, that are odd, things that, that the locals just take for granted and think are normal. But you just notice, you think, that's strange. Now, Francois and Karika came from South Africa some eight years ago, and uh, Karika was, was sharing with me that, uh, w- that when she first came here, it was, it was really strange and unnerving for her to, to live in a house that didn't have bars on all the windows. Whereas if you've grown up in Australia, you just the reverse, you'd think that was, uh, that was true. It's when we step outside, sorry, when we step in from outside that we, we start to notice and observe differences. And in today's Bible passage that we're looking at here, Paul stepped in from outside, he stepped into Athens, and he made some observations as an outsider. And his observation is recorded for us in Acts 17, verse 16, the first verse in our passage, and his observation is that the city was full of idols. Now, in that day, Athens was a significant city, it was regarded as the home of the gods, and uh, although by this stage it, it was past its prime as a commercial and political centre, it was still a, a centre of cultural and intellectual and religious activity. 
The city was full of idols. One writer says that in Athens there were 30,000 idols, these statues and, and objects of people's worship. That's a lot of idols. And while Paul visited Athens, he's waiting there, he's, he's waiting for, for his companions Silas and Timothy, he observed that the city was full of idols. Now I wonder if Paul visited Sydney, if he wandered down Pitt Street Mall or Martin Place or MacArthur Square or some of our great sporting venues or the streets of suburban Harrington Park, what would his observation be as he stepped in from the outside? Well, I think that even though 21st century Australia is, well, is different from 1st century Athens and may not have gold and silver and stone statues that people worship as idols, I actually think that idolatry is alive and well in Australia. Because idolatry is, is not just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is allowing something or someone else to take God's rightful place in our lives, such that we, we value and serve and pursue and prioritise that thing, that, that uh, person, instead of God. We put something else in God's place. And maybe it's um, our wealth. Our career might be a house, even our kids, could be sport, achievement, success, fame, or it might simply be ourselves. And I think that even though the, uh, the outward appearance of first century Athens and, and our context, they're, they're different on the outward sign, underneath they're very similar. I, I think it could be said of both that the city is full of idols. But notice that uh, Paul didn't just uh, observe this fact in a kind of uh, disinterested way. Notice it says he was greatly distressed to see this. He was greatly provoked. He was disturbed. And indeed, it is distressing and disturbing and provoking when you see people's rejection of God and their worship of their treasured idols. See the blindness and enslavement to selfishness and superstition and fear. And that's what Paul did. He, he didn't just observe like a curious tourist. He was greatly distressed. So what did he do? Well, verse 17, So, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul saw the, uh, the idolatry and he knew that the, the, the only answer is to engage with people and to, to, to seek to tell them about Jesus and to point them to him. And, and so he reasoned with them. And notice the three groups there that he, that he reasoned with. Firstly, it's the Jews and Greeks, uh, God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. We've seen in previous weeks how that was Paul's uh, regular practice, to go firstly to the Jews and to tell them of Jesus, to show them from the Scriptures how Jesus is the Christ and to seek to persuade them. I mean, they, they had a, a starting point of, of at least knowing the true God of Israel. Uh, they weren't caught up in all the idolatry of Athens. And so he goes to them, but it, uh, that doesn't appear to yield uh, much, if any, fruit. They're, they're still trapped in their religion of, of law-keeping. The second group he 
he uh, speaks to and seeks to reason with just the regular folk of Athens, the people in the, who happen to be in the marketplace. They're the tradesmen, the farmers, the commercial people there with their, with their wares, trying to get by, trying to make a living, yet caught up in idolatry and superstition and fear. Paul reasoned with them. He told them of Jesus, told them of his resurrection, told them the way that they can know the true God. But notice the third group that he spoke to, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They were the intellectual ruling class and they debated with Paul. Now I'm guessing you've probably never come across an Epicurean or Stoic philosopher you ever been to the party and ask someone what they do for a living and they say, oh, I'm an Epicurean philosopher? It's probably not happened. And yet, actually, these ways of thinking are very much alive and well today. See, the, the Epicureans were atheists. They denied God's existence. They denied life after death. And they were materialists. They, they just lived for this life. They prized uh, pleasure they avoided pain. Uh, the, the Epicurean motto today would be, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I'm sure you agree that that attitude is widespread today, even if it's no longer called Epicureanism. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were, they were pantheists. That is, they believed uh, that everything is God. He doesn't exist as a separate being, but, uh, but uh, the trees, he's in the trees and the rocks and, and, and everything. And the stoic goal in life is just to be resigned to how things are, to just take what comes. Their motto today would be, just grin and bear it. So these philosophers, they, they bump into Paul and they debate with him. And it says some of them, presumably the Epicureans, they, they write him off as a babbler. Verse 18, halfway through, he says, what is this babbler trying to say? They mock him. And how often is that the case? And when someone has no reasonable defence against Christianity, they just resort to mocking, dismissal. <laughs> He's just a babbler. These days it's often, they're just a bigot. So some mocked. Others remarked, it says, this is probably the Stoics, end of verse 18. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Here are two more gods, they say, Jesus and the resurrection. And they say, well, let's, let's hear more of this. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. What a life, hey? All they did was bounce around the latest ideas. They're obsessed with novelty, with finding something new. Which really, if you think about it, is not a lot different to our own day and age. Our culture is obsessed with novelty, with the latest thing. And we have this assumption that if it's new and novel, well, it's, it's good. Isn't it? Really? Worth pondering that. 
So they bring Paul to the, uh, before the Areopagus, this council of city leaders. They want to hear him. They want to decide about this new message. And this is a big opportunity for Paul. I mean, here he is facing the, the leaders of this, of this significant city, this, this city that's trapped in idolatry, and, and he has a message to speak, he, to free them, a message that will free them from their idolatry. And so verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He starts his speech by, by connecting with his audience, by even flattering them. He says, you're, I can see you're very religious. And their city was full of idols. They're religious. But then he goes on to say, they're ignorant. He comments on how religious they are. Verse 23, he says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. I mean, they're covering all their bases. They're making sure all the gods are catered for, even the unknown gods. Let's make sure they have an altar for them too. They're religious, but ignorant. And Paul cleverly picks up on on their worship of this unknown God, and he says, well, let me fill you in. Let me tell you about the God who you don't yet know. I think that description, religious but ignorant, could also describe many people in Australia today. I mean, not in terms of of bowing down to to statues, though that, that happens, but people chase after and they serve various God substitutes with an almost religious passion and devotion. Whether it's wealth or career or sport or family or travel or entertainment, people serve their idols seeking meaning, seeking significance, seeking security in those things. And yet they're largely ignorant of the one true and living God. Our world, like Paul's, needs to know this unknown God. And so Paul says, what what you uh, do not know, this is the one, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He says about correcting their ignorance. He, He reveals to them the true and living God. And so he says, firstly, that God is the maker. He's not the one who was made. Verse 24, look there with me. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He says God is not like the dumb idols, objects that are made by people. He is the creator, not the creation. He is the one who made all, who rules over all. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's he's over all, he's above all, he's beyond all. He doesn't live in some tiny temple built by human hands. You know, as if we can build a house to contain and domesticate the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who made the world and everything in it. He's the maker, not the one who is made. Secondly, God is, he says, the giver, not the taker. Verse 25 And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life, uh, sorry, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
God doesn't need us or, or depend on us to, to serve and, and help him. He's, he's not supported by us. He doesn't take from us. No, he gives. He's the great giver of life and breath and everything else. I mean, consider that. You are alive because God gives you life. You will take your next breath because God grants it to you. He's the maker. He's the giver. He's the sustainer. He gives, not takes. So many people, even within Christian circles, mistakenly think that God needs us to, to serve him with our good deeds, with our devotion. And so we bring to God our, our good deeds, our baptism, our church attendance, and we just our general goodness of character, we offer up our service to him as if he needs that from us. It's not how it works, which is a very good thing because our good deeds are patchy at best. And if it was up to us and our good deeds, we would be in serious trouble. Now, the good news of Jesus and the resurrection, this message that Paul preached in Athens, it means that first and foremost, we don't serve God, God serves us. In Mark 10 verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If God left us to ourselves, we would have no hope. But he didn't leave us to ourselves. Jesus came into this world to serve us by dying for us, to, to take the punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, for our idolatry, to take that himself so that God could forgive us and could give us new life and breath and everything else, including relationship with him. We don't give to God our, our good deeds and our devotion in order to please him and appease him. We receive from God the gift of forgiveness, of relationship with him through Jesus. God is the giver, not the taker. Thirdly, God is directing and engaged. He's not distant. Look there at verse 26. It says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul says God made and, and directs all the nations of the world. He, he determines and marks out their times in history, their boundaries. He sovereignly engages with and directs the course of human history, so that people might seek him, so they might turn to him and perhaps find him. That is, God is not some kind of distant, impersonal force, standing back, watching, waiting. No, he wants us to know him, to relate to him. He is close, he is near to us. Because we are his, he made us. As Paul then quotes from two of their own writers, he says, verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. We are made 
to be in relationship with him because, as he continues, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are made by God and we are made to be with God as his own people. You know, the, the bond uh, and family connection between a parent and a child is a profound and rich and close relationship. We, that's how we know it's meant to be. For Francois and Karika, you know, their precious daughter Miller is, is so precious to them. She is theirs. She is their offspring. In one sense, they, they give her life. They give her breath. They give her everything else. And they're near to her and they want, they want relationship with her. Now, it's not a direct parallel to our relationship with God, but it illustrates in part how God is he's not distant. He's directing and engaged. We are his offspring. He wants us to seek him, to reach out to him, to find him. What wonderful news that is. God is the maker. He's he's not the one who's made. He's the giver, not the taker. He's engaged and directing. He's he's not distant. And Paul revealed this to the Areopagus. God reveals it to us through his word in Acts 17. And so we can see and, and know who the true and living God is. And so as was the case for those in the Areopagus, so too for us, we can move from ignorance to knowledge, knowledge of the true and living God. So let me draw out a couple of implications for us. Firstly, God wants us to know him. He made this world, he made us, he is the sovereign Lord and God directing things so that we might turn to him, so that we might know him. And he's made that possible through giving us not only life and breath and everything else, but most of all, giving us his son Jesus to die and rise again for us. God wants us to know him. What a joy and a privilege that is. And so secondly, we should listen to the observations of an outsider that comes to us from God's word. We should listen and we should turn away from ignorant idol worship. And turn to the true and living God. That is, we should receive and believe in him as our God. And we should continue to receive and believe in him as our God. I mean, the the shiny trinkets and trophies that people chase after and worship, the the house and the car and the wealth, the lifestyle, the worldly success and achievement, they're, they're a pathetic, minuscule substitute for knowing the true and living God. So pursue him. Follow him. Worship him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. So turn to him and keep turning to him as the Lord of our lives. And receive the great gift of relationship with him as as we listen to his word in the Bible, as we pray to him, as we walk with him day by day. What a privilege. God wants us to know him. Now you might have noticed if you're reading through the passage, we are... We haven't finished reading Paul's speech to the Areopagus. It continues on, verse 29, but we're, we're pausing partway through, which may seem a bit strange. I think it seems a bit strange myself, actually. But, but next Sunday is Easter. 
And the end of, of Paul's speech here is an excellent passage to reflect on at Easter. So in a sense, come back next week to hear the conclusion of the sermon. But for now, I just want us to, to grab hold of what God's word says here. God wants us to know him. What a joy, what a privilege that is. So in light of that, let's, let's turn away. Let's keep turning away from ignorant idol worship and turn to the true and living God. Receive him and believe in him as our God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you as a true and living God. And we thank you for making yourself known to us. We thank you for the scriptures that point us to the Lord Jesus. Father, we praise you as our creator, our sustainer, our saviour. And we thank you that you want us to know you, that you have paved the way for us to do that through the Lord Jesus and his death for us. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for our idolatry. Please forgive us and please change our hearts that we would turn away and that we continue to turn away from worshipping and serving idols and would rather turn to worship and serve you, our Lord and our God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.